Hello, welcome to Stages. I'm Peter Ayers, and today my guest is former licensing agent at Warner Chapel, Nanette Frew. Commercial and amateur theatre producers who wish to procure the rights to present a musical or play must first apply to the representative of the owners. Whether you're Cameron Mackintosh or Bullerock Light Opera Company, a licence to perform must be obtained. Intellectual property is then protected and the necessary parties receive their rightful compensation. If you have ever secured a performing licence for a musical or play, chances are you've heard the name Nanette Frew. For almost 20 years, Nanette was the licensing agent for the organisation Warner Chapel. She protected the many shows they represented and negotiated with many schools, community theatre groups and commercial producers to ensure every show licensed was presented as contracted. The properties in her care were extensive. Indeed, she oversaw the explosive success of Les Miserables on the professional stage and when it was released to non-professional artists. Prior to this, she commenced her working life as a copywriter in the world of radio advertising in country Victoria. She's also navigated a significant role contributing to community theatre as a director and actor, working regularly with the Genesian Theatre Company and Pimble Players. Nanette is a delight and shares some fascinating stories of behind the scenes and the tremendous care required in the execution of her role managing many of the shows we have seen on professional and amateur stages. So we'll also maybe talk about Genesium, is it good? Yeah, if you like, yeah, You've sure. Got to head around the history of that place? Yeah, where it's you going. know, it's going to move, it's that tragic. Uh, yes, the... It's been built, bought. The, the building has been bought. No, developers bought it. The church sold it to developers. I know. That, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, at the time, it was. I think the going price at that time, it was probably went for a lot more. Was seven million. It was probably more than that because it's a very good. But they have found the developers found they cannot touch the outside, uh, the sides, and the outside, and they can't touch the roof. So it's heritage. But what are they going to do with it? Yeah. So for two years we've been still in there, despite the fact that, you know, we don't own it anymore. And we've been paying them a huge rent. Rent. Right. They've been charging us a huge rent to stay there. That's half the battle with uh, a theatre, isn't it? To to actually find somewhere which is central, but parking or arrival and well, departure perfect, is good. You know, yeah. that theatre was perfect there. We've been there for, yeah, I don't exaggerate, but I think something like fifty years. Hmm. Yeah. How long have you been associated with Genesis? I knew you'd ask me that. Um. Forgotten, forty odd years. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. A- a- as a performer and director. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I-, I mention a little bit of it in here. I'm not sure that I mentioned the date, uh, but of course, you know, I'll get to it when I talk to you. Baz Lerman was a little lad lived in Eleanora. We lived in Eleanora for many years, and Baz was known as Mark then, and he was in a play with me at the Eleanora Players, which was pretty small stuff, you know. And um, I was doing this play in, in my first play at the Genesian Theatre, and uh, I said, I need a, a teenage boy, so will you be able to? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I used to have to cart him backwards and forwards in my little mini, and his mother insisted that, you know, I looked after him. I thought, he was a real devil of a kid, <laughs> very talented. So that's uh, where my, I started with Mark. Yeah. Now we've started, we'll just continue talking. See, you were relaxed, weren't you? As soon as you say we've started, people put on their voice and they, they, oh, they talk. Oh, you are a devil. No, no, that's good. So community theatre, you've been involved with all your life as a girl. Did you participate um, in, in local societies? And 
Yes, I did. In in Sale. I, I lived in Sale for many years. Um, in Victoria? In Victoria. Mm-hmm. I worked at the radio station there. I was a, a radio copywriter. That was my first job. Um, out, of, out of school? Straight out of a convent school. Right. Um, 17, I think, or 17. And um, my mother insisted, wanted to know if I was going to work there. Um, what was I going to be taught? <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, she found out I would be taught how to do radio copywriting. And I stayed there for nearly seven years. Right. A long time. I eventually took over, you know, when my replacement went. Define copywriting for me. So you're writing commercials? Commercials, or, right, all the time. Right. Yeah, and sometimes scripts. At Easter and Christmas, we used to do entertaining, so-called entertaining scripts about the Christian season, whatever it happened to be at the time. Hmm. So you would be given a product that you had to test and try out before you could write about it? Or how would you I brief yourself in order no, to... you lied. You, <laughs> or spin. It's all about illusion, isn't yes. it? Yes. Um, no, it depended on um, what you were trying to sell. Uh, in the country, a lot of it was to do with the um, uh, farmers, farmers. Uh, Big industries that were around there, timber industry, um, that sort of thing. So, you, and you were learning on the job, I guess. Absolutely, and I'm sure I made lots of mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, who was guiding you? Was it a very male-oriented? No, there um, was a woman called no? um, Dorothy Bowden. Right. Now, her nephew was Tim Bowden. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you. It does. I'm just trying to think yes, of Tim, where. Yes, Tim Bowden. Was he a presenter so, on the ABC? Is that Tim? Oh, look, no. he was involved in a lot of things. Yes. Right. And a writer. Um, But Dorothy Bowden was my mentor. And when she retired, um, I got the job. And I don't know whether I I think I might have made 20 by then. I was about 20, maybe. And um, you you learnt on the job. Mm. So how did you get to Sydney? After nearly seven years, six and a half years, I think, I thought, I've got to get out of this country town of Sale. It's a city, actually. Otherwise, I'll end up marrying a farmer or somebody (laughs) like that. (laughs) And you'll be there forever. Yeah. So so I grew up in a little country town too, and um, I couldn't wait to get out and see the world. But we were the same. Uh, (laughs) So um, I went to Brisbane, uh, not initially, but um, you you ran into some of these um, radio announcers who were there. For instance, Ernie Carroll. Uh, Ozzy Ostrich. That's right. Ernie Carroll uh, was the night announcer when I was there. Brian Carl went in soon after that. Now, Brian Carl became a big name in Brisbane uh, TV. Uh, Who else was we have there? I've forgotten. Colin Goss. But um, after a a few years, um, they moved on to other uh, more interesting pastures. but that was interesting, you know, meeting them in their, their early days when they first started out. Uh, uh, we're talking about the 50s, I guess? Uh, late 50s, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ernie married a local girl. Um, can't remember her name now. I think she worked at 3TR. So uh, it was a big, actually quite a big studio. Uh, we had three male announcers and a female at the, all at the one time. We had an engineer and a couple of um, other engineer type people who were doing the technical things and uh, me and I eventually I had an assistant so you had a big cast from time and when the female um, announcers from time to time for various reasons went left the place and went on to possibly better uh, better job 
I was a sort of fill-in announcer. Now, I didn't have the voice for it, nor the experience, and I'm sure it was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) But I was there and I filled in. But those rural stations were great training grounds, weren't they? Mm. To to teach all sorts of skills. You thought you were good, but you knew you weren't. So in Sydney, you arrived as a um, copywriter, or, or there was a no, hiatus in Brisbane. Well, I for went a while. To, to um one of the big um, agencies, and I did write it down so I'd remember. But I went into the and a, a woman called Miss, I think it was Miss Pond, interviewed me, and um, I said I wanted to get a job as a radio copywriter, and she said, you know, I gave her all my details, and then she said to me, <clears throat> "Go home, little girl. The big city is not for you." Well, <laughs> that devastated me. I bet. So, so I immediately went up to Surface Paradise for a holiday. I was in Sydney briefly. I thought, I'll go up to Surface Paradise with my friend. And um, while I was there, I ran into Brian Carl, who was then just getting into television, just started. But you'd work with him in sale. He'd been in yeah. sale, yeah. Brian Carl. So um, he said, listen, I can get you a job if you like. Would you like to live, work in Brisbane? And I said, I'm not sure I do. Why? And he said... Well, I cannot remember the name of the company, but it'll come to me later on. So I went to this place and I said, look, I've already tried a job there. And he said, no, no, this is different. This is a local one. So I went in and um, they said, could you do 2,000 words a day? I said, of course. 2,000 words a day is not a problem. I said, okay. Um, Can I drive? Yes, I could drive, but I didn't have a licence. Because they were just getting into doing everything on television so I got a job there oh and after about a year I was sent down to Melbourne with some of the other people to to this company whose name now escapes me and uh, I met this woman Miss Pond again I was introduced to her I said oh we've met before Miss Pond and she said oh have we and I (laughs) said yes you said to me when I applied for a job here you said go home little girl the big city's not for you. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you didn't take my advice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I can't remember the company. Isn't that dreadful? Oh, dear. That's, that's age for you. But anyway, it, um, I, I stayed there for quite a long time, met my husband there. Uh, Don was the advertising manager for Queensland for Woolworths, which was pretty big uh, in those days. And uh, I thought he was rather gorgeous. And eventually, uh, we liked each other, fell in love, eventually got married. And not long after we were married, about nine months after we were married, we moved to Sydney. And we just built a house. And we were poor. (laughs) And we had to come down here to Sydney. He had a job in Sydney with them. And it was difficult. It was difficult. Yeah. did you work with Ms Pond for long? No, no, no. She no. was in, in Sydney. Right, okay. So I right. went back to Brisbane. But, right. But it did my ego a lot of good to be able to say that to her, you mm-hmm. know. Well, moving moving homes at the best of times is, is pretty tough, but moving states as well and then having to develop a new social I network. Think, and I was at the age that you needed a bit of adventure, you know. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't necessarily going to stay in a country town for the rest of my life. No, no, no. Although I liked sail. Sail was a nice place. Yeah. So you arrived in Sydney with your hubby. Um, yeah, and then soon after that I was pregnant. We had two babies uh, in a short period. And, of course, I didn't work for many years. Yeah, yeah. You, had a, you didn't in those no, days. No, had a period raising mm. a family and mm. homemaker. 
So, so the kids are old enough, I guess, and then you're, you're itching to get back into work? I used to go down to Domini Educational Supplies at Brookvale. Um, they mainly de- dealt with the uh, education side of things, but they also had the Samuel French... Um, what would you say? Library or... Uh... Yeah, they, they represented Samuel French in Australia, which was plays. And there was a room which was their library, and in there, there would have been thousands of scripts that they, uh, you know, they licensed people and sold them. And I went into there that day, and uh, I wasn't dressed properly. I went down just to get a script. And the girl said, oh, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. I'm pregnant and I can't wait. I said, what's the hurry? And she said, I'm not taking any chances with this baby. I'm leaving now. And I said, "What? how will we get on? You were so knowledgeable. She said, oh, you could do this. You know more than I do. And I said, I don't think so. She said, I'll take you up to the managing director now and you can have an interview. And I thought, you know, I look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did. I had an interview and um, I got the job. And I was there for another, this is another one of seven years, I think. A long time. Gee, talking to folk on this podcast, you realise how many happy accidents there are in the world that yeah. people just sort of stumble into yeah. positions and that hadn't really been planned. I, I enjoyed working there and... Uh, because I, at this stage of my life, musicals didn't come into it. Right, just plays. It was all just plays. Well, I, during the community theatre that community you were involved theater in. Community theatre, I was directing plays, or I was in plays. Um, I did go to the occasion. I knew about uh, um, Rodgers and Hammerstein, of course, and uh, uh, various... I knew a little bit about musical, but nothing really about the industry. So one day, I had a call from a man who was the managing director of... Chapel and Intersong, and this he the officers were in King's Cross, and he said, um, "I want to offer you a job." And I said, "You don't even know me," and he said, "Well, we'll fix that. You come and have lunch with me." And he took me out to some fancy restaurant, and um, <clears throat> offered me a job at a lot more salary than I was getting at Dominie's, so that was a plus, you know. I said, "Okay." Now, when I got there, I realised that most of the work I was going to be doing was with musicals, right. not plays. Then yep. I said, oh dear, I don't know a lot about musicals, but I'll soon find out. Yeah. And so that's how I started. Well, I guess those companies like Samuel French and Dominey and, and Chapel and all that, they're all starting to emerge in Australia at that time because mm. um, amateur theatre companies are starting to evolve and, and, and grow. Amateur theatres were everywhere. There's a need to licence products. Um, <clears throat> yeah, certainly at Dominey's, it was all plays. But now I was into all musicals. And that was interesting because Music Theatre International was their biggest client and that was a supplier of all the big, not all, but almost all the big musicals came through Music Theatre International. Um, the day I arrived to start this new job at um, Chapel and Intersong, Kamal was there. He'd driven up in his Rolls Royce, you know, and <laughs> I was introduced and the managing director said, um, this is Nanette, she's, um, it's her birthday today. Um, and he said, oh, so he led the singing of happy birthday to me. And, of course, I told my mother-in-law and she was over the <laughs> She said, oh, Kamal, you know, so... He was very famous. He was, he was heaps of gold records, didn't he? Oh, he was, yeah, was yeah. huge. And a very nice time. man. Very yeah, nice yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, so was it a, a, just about... Before we start getting into the theatrical licensing, etc. radio, was it a tough gig for a woman in the 50s? You mean writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the industry that you're working in. Well, it was only in an amateur. It was in a, a country radio station, 3TR. Right. Um, 
No. I think if you wanted to be an announcer, it may have been, but I never wanted to be an announcer. Right. You know, not really. Were, I, I, were you a Miss Radio at some point? Oh, yes. Where did you hear about that? Oh, I've done my research. <laughs> they, they used to run a, a, On um, Christmas Day, they ran a Christmas Day appeal for the hospitals, yep. you know, to raise money. And um, I'm just trying to think how I can tell you about this. Oh, they, they needed... They had this big festival and they had Miss uh, Country, Miss Radio and Miss something else. And the local undertaker's daughter was one. I was another and I've forgotten the third girl. Anyway, we three were competing in the area to raise money. I think it was for the hospital. Anyway, my with the radio station behind me, I'm sure that was what caused it, um, we raised the most money. So I was declared Miss Sale and we were stuck on a float and driven all around the town. My father was so proud, you know. He thought this was great. Um, yeah, it was uh, the highlight of my teenage years, you know. Well, a lot of those small rural towns had uh, an annual festival, didn't they? And there was Miss Golden Wattle and Miss Begonia. Yeah, and... yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did you find that out? Goodness. Oh. <laughs> so Warner Chapel... You were, were discovering uh, what it was not, well, not Warner Chapel at the time, was it? It was Chapel. It was Chapel and Intersong. Right. So how did it you? It became Warner Chapel when Warner Brothers took over the company, and it became called Warner Chapel then. And the new managing director was John Brommel, who was well known in the industry, and John was Rough Diamond, the exact opposite of the previous managing director, but he was also the sort of person who threw money about in order to make things happen. And the first week when he interviewed all of us, he raised our salaries. So my salary went up, I think, by 5000 which was... Wow, know, that's considerable. Yeah, yeah, I thought, wow, I love this fella. Yeah. And then at the end of the month, it went up again. So I thought, anything that John Brommel wants to do, I'll do, you know. Yeah. But he, he wasn't the sort of person who normally I would have run into. He was what you call a rough diamond. But um, he sent me overseas the first time, and I'd never been over before. Um, as a representative of the company and uh, I was in London for a while and in New York. Uh, it was all very exciting and um, terrifying actually in lots of ways and this is when I started to meet various people. I had some very interesting encounters. Um, was this with, with the composers or the producers? Or? Um, sometimes the musical directors but in the case of... Um, uh, Lloyd Webber, whom we represented at that time, the really useful company, um, I went to see this young man who was, I presume, a manager of some kind, and he took me to the Abbey Road Studios. You know the famous Abbey Road right. Studios? Where the, the Beatles walk where across the, walk, the that's crossing. Right. We yeah, walked yeah. across. <laughs> we went in there, and this was a day when, oh, golly, I, shame on me if I can't remember, um, Jose Carreras. Was, had been very ill. He'd had leukaemia and he was now on mend. He was okay. And this is the first recording he was making after his illness. And he was there and he was being produced by a, a well-known man whose name I've, of course, forgotten. And uh, we sat there watching this gorgeous man. He was so nice looking and so lovely. And to meet him afterwards, and he was beautifully dressed, I remember. I remember every item of clothing he had on. They <laughs> <laughs> quite an impression. Yeah. So um, the same young man who belonged to the really useful company uh, said, uh, look, I'll take you to the Palace Theatre, which uh, Andrew uh, had just bought. 
And um, so we went from the dressing rooms, which were on one level, down the, this circular staircase to the stage. And the circular staircase was lined with pressed tin. And the staircase was metal. And I said, this is odd. What's, what, why is this? He said, oh, well, that's to stop the old actors from, th or to prevent fire. The old actors used to be going on stage and they'd take out their cigar or their cigarette and throw it aside. And, of course, could set <laughs> the whole place on A fire. A tinderbox, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's why they had this pressed metal all the way down the stairs and the metal on the... I thought, it's not interesting. That's I'd never have discovered that. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so how did you go about educating yourself with that, the, the plethora of musicals that were... Well, I went to everything. Around, yeah. Uh, all the amateur stuff, of course. I went to it anyway so I could get to know about it. Um, the first big licence that I had was West Side Story. Now, this was um, Ken Mackenzie Forbes, whom I'm sure you've heard yes, of. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Ken came to me and said that he thought... He, he was at the uh, Victoria State Opera then... He said, well, the Victoria State Opera wants to put on West Side Story, but we're only going to do it for a month. And I said, oh, you, <laughs> it's not going to make much impact in a month because yeah. they weren't used to anything longer. Yeah. In fact, they never even put an opera on for a month. So anyway, it, bit by bit, this month was extended until it gradually became a huge uh, contract for me. It, um, it went from Melbourne in February 1994... Then it went to Sydney, Brisbane and Adelaide. Went all through 1995 and it didn't close until the Capitol Theatre in Haymarket in December 1996. Now, that was three glorious years. That yeah. was incredible at the time. Yeah. Made a packet for both them and for my company. They were golden years, then. Like Phantom and, and Lemmy's were in theatres for um, I considerable time. I don't think they were in those years, were right. they? 94? No, it's a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but that, that period of extended runs was... Of course, when you mentioned Lemmy's, that was one of the milestones in my career, really. Um, after its initial successful professional uh, run, which would, I can't remember how long it ran. You remember Normie Rowe was in the lead? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And people were very dismissive of Normie initially, but he sang that role beautifully. Mm, mm. After a certain length of time, and I can't remember how many years it ran, um, Cameron said I could have the amateur rights. Now, that was really big news. That's huge, yeah. It was the first of anywhere in the world that amateurs would have been given this. This was a classic show. So I decided I would get in touch with everyone I knew, in those days by fax, I think, and I sent out faxes to say that I had the rights now and would you please let me know whether you're interested, when you think you could stage it and, you know, for how long and blah, 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 and then I would, um, I would then decide what to do. Now, the New Zealand people got themselves together very well. They were very um, organised. They decided to form a consortium of musical societies around both islands and they would mount a production where costumes would be made by this society, lighting, blah, 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 would be done on this one, and so on. They took responsibilities. Now, they didn't cut each other's throats. They, they ran this around the two islands in a very orderly manner so that everyone got an opportunity to make 
a lot of money out of it and a wonderful experience. Wellington, I think, did it for a month. Now, that's a long wow. time. For a community theatre. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's a fully sung work. Hmm. Pretty good. So, um, And everyone's got day jobs. Uh, probably, yes. Yeah. And I think there were aspiring singers, you know, people who wanted to be yeah. professionals who were in it as well. And now that, that consortium um, idea is still working today. Um, it's the way they sort themselves out on a very, very big show, which mm. I think is excellent, that they're not cutting into each other's territory mm. and doing it on a an organised basis. Of course, Wellington, which I think is almost professional now, um, Wellington sort of has the grip on it. It was more so than, than um, any of the other places, you know. It's pretty big time. So when a company applied for the performing rights... What sort of things did you have to consider? Because they have to fill out quite a bit of detail, you know, the size of their theatre, how many performances, the dates and all that sort of thing. Well, I was familiar with some of the theatres themselves because I'd been going over. Every year I would go over to the annual general meeting of the um, federation. They had a federation of light opera societies in um, New Zealand and I would go over, I think it was about March, and it's still going today. You go over there and you go to the meeting and you'd hear all the local news about who was doing what and who wanted what and then they would come up to you and say what they particularly wanted to do and, um, you know, you sorted it out there. It's still going. Um, Stuart Hendricks, who uh, is with Music Theatre International, he um, he goes over every year in March, I think, and they, they've got a very good working relationship with the New Zealand... Uh, well, they don't call them opera societies now. They call them like musical societies. But the first, I should say, did I tell you that I thought when the first Les Mis was done right. in Australia, no. it was Cairns Choral Society. And I, shame on me, I thought, oh, dear, Cairns, you know. Yeah. Cairns is a little place up way north. up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I went to the opening and shame on me, it was magnificent. Oh, great. It, they were a choral society. Yeah. And as you know, Les Mis is a fully sung work. Yeah. So they did an exceptional production and they are very proud to say they are the first um, society to give first amateur rights in the world went to Cairns to Cairns Coral Society, society. which they could boast about so what was your consideration there that they were the first one to get their application in they or? were they yep. were the first and they dealt with a great deal of difficulty because the, the scores for the orchestra didn't arrive until about two weeks before you know i thought oh god the poor things but um they managed very well they were they were, their singing was brilliant because they were a choral society and that's true of new zealand where most of the societies over there are choral society so they that's the sort of thing they do choral work mm. they, they they're experts mm. in it mm. as opposed to australia where we have musical societies who do um, um musicals very well but i'm not so sure that they're anywhere near the size or capacity of new zealand right. and new zealand is a small place yep. at that time when i was dealing with them there was only a professional theater company in um, Auckland, a small one, and there was the Christchurch Court Theatre, and that was it. They were the only two professionals at the time. The rest were amateur. A lot of people who've come out of um, into the profession from New Zealand were amateurs. They started that way. Hmm. So they, the amateur society do a great deal there. 
You're also dealing with a lot of professional producers, you know, John Frost and Cameron McIntosh, I guess, and yes. Michael Edgeley, perhaps. Let's or... put it the other way around. Cameron McIntosh deals with me yeah. in as much as I don't. <laughs> he tells me what he wants. He's yeah. lovely. I get on with him very well. Yeah. Uh, John Frost is lovely. So what, uh, it's good to work with those guys. Um, um, well, I get on with um, John Frost very well. He's a lovely man. They come to you because you, you're the keeper of the keys. In those days, they you're did. The, oh, in, the, in those days, <laughs> yes, you're the keeper of the keys. You, you have got, you're holding the licence. Yes. That will allow them to do... If he wanted to do one of my shows, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So you're a, you're a protector of the intellectual property of the composers and the, and the writers of the shows, aren't you? You're the owners, of, the owners. The owners. So it depends on who owned the show. Oh, right. Of course, because they can... They in, in America, they would be... The initial rights of a show would be assigned to somewhere like um, Music Theatre International. Right. And then Music Theatre International had people like me in the field who promoted the show. Um, the One of the most exciting one uh, shows I ever saw was one that John Frost took to New York. It was The King and I. Oh, yeah, yeah. Had big success He'd done it here. Yeah. Yeah, he'd done it here in Australia. He took it to Broadway, and um, I think it was 1996, I hope I'm right. Hayley Mills started it. Here? Yeah, she, yes, Miss, yeah she didn't Mrs. do Anna. it in New York. No, 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 that was... Um, I can't remember. It started, no. started with a C. Was it somebody called Carmel, or...? No, no, it's... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Forgotten. Oh, anyway. She won a Tony, too. They did extraordinary well. business. Mm. Anyway, it was the most exciting thing, really, to go to a New York opening. It started with a cocktail party at Rogers and Hammerstein's own uh, offices, and we went in there. I don't know what time we went to it, maybe about 5.30 or 6. And here were a lot of the creative team were there at the cocktail part, p- party, and so was Joan Sutherland. So that was very interesting to be in a party with her. Yeah. Then when it was time for us to go to the theatre, we all went out and we walked up Broadway together and we went into, and I can't remember the name of the theatre, I don't think I remember now. John would shoot me for this. Oh, yes, it was the Neil Simon Theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's where we enjoyed the show, which was delightful and exciting. And then afterwards we went to a, I think it was a hotel, where we went to the ballroom and in this ballroom was going to be the party. Now, I've never been to a party like it. All the tables were decorated with huge carved ice decorations. Elephants, Thai temples, you name it, to do with Thailand or Siam. It was just mind-boggling. <laughs> and we had a lovely time, good food and interesting people. So uh, I had a lovely time there. That was that was the big, big, big night for me to go to something, an opening night on Broadway yeah. uh, with people I knew, you know, John and various other people there. Well, yeah. what about shows like Annie? I believe you were the first rights holder of, of Annie when that was done. Funnily enough, I think Annie ha- had been obtained by a New Zealand amateur operatic society. Now, I don't know how that happened, but it was before I got it. And I thought that was a bit odd, but maybe they dealt directly with the the uh, own, or the people who represented Annie itself. They didn't go through Music Theatre International. But anyway, that was the, uh, yes, we had Annie. Annie did very well, because um, Anthony Warlow was in that, if you remember. Music Theatre International, that was started in 1952 by Frank Lesser and his orchestrator, Don Walker. 
and he he um, is associated with one of the musicals, isn't he, Frank Lister? What what musical did he write? Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Um, the most happy fella. I don't know that one. Standing on the corner, watching all oh, the no. girls go by. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, so, so they started that to to license Lesser's works. Um, uh, for Broadway, Off Broadway, and West End, and then Freddie Gershon. Freddie Gershon, who is still in uh, the business today, Freddie's retired from being the managing director of Music Theatre International, and he is now um, exploring and doing very successfully, cutting down musicals for um, children, so that the children can have access to certain musicals, and he's done it on a grand scale. That was his first venture, and now he's cutting down musicals for elderly citizens, many of whom, of course, are not able to do high kicks in the, in the chorus line, you know. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's his... Because he's uh, he's in his... Um, I won't say how old he is, I'm only guessing, but uh, he's in his mature years and he hasn't given up now. He's he's still going strong and he's a lovely man and the, the most amusing fellow you could imagine, really. Delightful man. And Cameron McIntosh became a partner in 1990 and then... He bought into the company. Majority owner in 2015. Yeah, he bought into the company and that means, of course, that all of Cameron McIntosh's shows will then be done by or go through Music Theatre International. And they have an office here in in, um, Melbourne and it's now called uh, Music Theatre International... Oh, I didn't remember the name of it. Australasia, right, and that's run by um, Stuart Hendricks, whom you should get to know. Now, yeah, there's yeah. a really interesting young man. Yeah, absolutely. I gave him that job. Yeah, yeah. I chose, and I was worried when I chose him. I said, "Oh, he's so gentle. I hope he's going to be strong enough to deal with some of the people he's going to have to stand up to." You know, we've got a few crooks in our industry. Really? Oh, yeah. oh surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> some in Melbourne, some in Brisbane, and there was one in. Sydney, but I think he's long gone. Yeah. Was that something you um, found easy to do, standing up to? I suppose you'd had that experience with Miss Pond, so... No, it wasn't easy because in two cases they were well-established people and uh, you knew they were crook and everybody else knew they were crook. But you just had to be careful that if you got them to agree to something that it was all written down in paper, you know, that it was a signed contract. But I've had the odd one who took the band parts and wouldn't give them back. Mm. <laughs> and what do you do? You, you sue them? Eventually, I know that happened to me once, and um, the, the leader of the orchestra, about a month or so after everything had crashed, rang me up and said, look, I've got a set of band parts here that I think are yours. Um, you know, the uh, fellow who put the show on didn't pay us, so we didn't give them back to him. Right. And I said, oh, good. So I said, look, I'll, I'll get a carrier to come and pick them up. Great. So that was all right. What was what was the show which was licensed most often? By okay. a- amateurs? Yeah, yeah, for, for your... Golly. I'd like to say West Side Story, but um, I think that's, that requires a lot of good dancing. Ooh, Annie was terribly popular. Uh, gosh, I, there were so many that did extraordinarily well. I'd say Annie probably... A lot of people did it because they could use, you know, small children. Yeah. Were you spending much nights at the theatre? A lot. Yeah, yeah. It was a big job. It was. You were out a lot at night. Yeah. Um, and I went a lot, of course, to drama as well. You know, all this time I was still working at the Genesian Theatre as a director 
Did I tell you that Mark Lerman was in my first production? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Baz, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, were you going out to see things um, for the enjoyment or you were just going out to check Both. on that things were being done Both. properly? Yeah. Both. Uh, there was one musical society in Sydney who wanted to change the position of songs in a particularly well-known Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. And they told me how they'd done. I said, no, you can't do that. Oh, but we, we don't think it's... We don't think it really gels well there. It should be in another position. I said, I think, you know, the writers knew a little bit more about it than no. you do. Mm. You may not change that. Off mic, before you were telling me about a, a school production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm. Can you tell me about that again? Oh. <laughs> this school wanted to put in, at the end of the show, a dramatised version of the New Testament about the resurrection of Christ. And they wanted to be make wanted their audience to be quite clear that they believed in the resurrection. It's not in the musical. And I said, no. If you don't want to do the musical as it is, you cannot do that. You want to put that dramatised version sometime away, you know, at another time, and you want to do a little um, dramatised version of the resurrection. Fine, but not as an adjunct to the musical. I said. Some wonderful schools with a lot of power, <laughs> particularly very well-heeled private schools. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever have to pull shows because the wrong thing was being done, or no, no? People generally did the right thing. Yes, on the whole. Although I have seen a show not so long ago in Sydney, which wasn't a musical; it was a play in which some well-known theatre company decided to alter the end of the play and um, it was the um, about Willie Loman yeah uh, Death of a Salesman Death of a Salesman they got into big trouble for that didn't they? yes now somebody dropped them in I don't know who did it but somebody uh, revealed to the owners overseas that this was happening that they'd taken out the final bit at the you know the funeral so, but you should be when you go and see that play, you should be in two minds about whether uh, Willie really committed suicide or not. Yes. Because he had a terrible reputation for being a bad driver. Mm. Now, it may have been an accident, in which case his wife would have got the, uh, any um, insurance. insurance. Mm. But they wanted to change it. And um, it was a well-known theatre company. And it had nothing to do with me, but my daughter was on the Herald at the time. She was the arts editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. And she said, now, do you know who this is? And I said, I can guess, but I'm not going to say a word. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not getting involved in this at yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, back to the Genesian, you've been involved for, for some decades. We've been talking for too long. No, it's fantastic. Yeah, you're right. Don't you have a time limit on this? <laughs> We're not near it yet. Um, <laughs> community theatre, why is that important to a society? Um, I suppose it allows people to go and get a knowledge of theatre from an area close to where they live. For instance, Pimble Players are terribly well um, um, supported by membership. They have no trouble in filling their, their uh, 20 performances they give for every show and they absolutely stack them in. Um, the Genesian Theatre, of course, being in the city has always been fantastic because, you know, people are just drawn to it. I, it doesn't matter what you put on. 
I mean, they always put on an Agatha Christie at the Genesian Theatre every year. And I say, oh, dear. But it would be a guaranteed seller, I Agatha, guess. Of course. It's a box Agatha, office. Agatha Christie. And they said, we don't care. We're going to get, we'll get every bum on the seat. <laughs> and they're right, of course. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And they do good, quite good productions of them. But uh, I remember going in London at once, you know, had never been to see The Mousetrap. I'd gone year after year after year. I thought, I'm going to go and see that rubbish. I read the play. So one year I thought, look, this is silly. You must go and see The Mousetrap before you die or before your job's over. So I went and it was exactly as I thought it would be. Really, really predictable. Very ordinary, very ordinary show. I think Agatha Christie herself was very surprised at how successful it was. And I don't know if it's still going. Gosh, I hope not. (laughs) Um, I I think it has stopped, finished, Mm. but uh, gee, it had a good innings, didn't it? Yeah. Nanette, thank you for talking to Stages today. Um, it's been really enlightening to hear all about the um, the life of a... What, what, what was the career description? It was Is it a, a licensor, uh, an agent, a licensing agent? A licensing agent for music libraries around the world. You know, Music Theatre International was one that was really useful at another stage. Joseph Weinberger was another one. Uh, and I did plays for Dramas' Play Service. I did... Uh, plays as well well thanks for giving us that insight (laughs) my pleasure having produced a few school musicals early in my career it was a great delight to finally meet Nanette a woman who featured regularly as a signatory on contracts securing show licences and what an amazing life eh there is always something new for us to learn so if you enjoyed this conversation you're bound to enjoy many more from the stages archive you'll find conversations with performers Caroline O'Connor and Buddy Turner Agent Mark Morrissey and producers John Robertson and Martin McCallum all have fascinating tales to tell across all stages, just like Nanette. And you can find the podcast on Wooshka, Spotify or in iTunes. I know you're subscribed, rated and reviewed, so I do not need to remind you about that. Tune in to the next episode when I sit down with Dr Richard Wally, a young Ahmad from Western Australia who has contributed immensely to the cultural life of the country via his Aboriginal and rich arts heritage. It is an insightful and informative conversation. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages. Catch you next time.